Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 6th, 2022, and the Ramifications of the crypto crash continue. An interesting piece in the Financial Times this morning asking whether the crypto crash will derail the next web revolution, the web revolution of Web3. My understanding is they're so bound up together that if we have one, we will probably have the other. Uh, lots of quotes in the FT piece, classic conventional quotes about uh, the fact that just because some things have crashed doesn't mean everything's crashed. Some of the crypto people say they've lived through these sorts of things before and they'll live through them again. Meanwhile, Meta, the ex-Facebook or what was once known as Facebook Meta, um, is pushing ahead with its digital collectibles plan, its so-called NFTs, which is rather chilling given that Facebook doesn't seem to be anybody's friend. Wall Street got out relatively clean. Interesting piece in the New York Times about how Wall Street escaped the crypto meltdown. The smart guys on Wall Street usually escape most most meltdowns. The crypto meltdown, in my view at least, was fairly self-evident and easy. Not easy to escape, but easy to escape if you knew exactly what was happening, which was much of it was a, a large Ponzi scheme. Uh, meanwhile, some of these platforms are still going bust. One Voyager Digital declared Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Lots of people lost a huge amounts of money. The only upside, at least according to CNBC, uh, is that uh, all these losses will turn into a tax write-off. Not exactly good news, but I guess better than nothing. Anyway, someone who's been doing... A lot of thinking about all this stuff is my guest today on the show, financial journalist Brett Scott. He has a book out, Cloud Money, Cash, Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets. It's not exclusively about crypto. He's talking to me from Berlin, which if uh, there is a crypto city in the world, it's probably Berlin. Uh, but I, uh, the book is just out uh, in the US. It was out last month or a couple of months ago in the UK. Uh, Brett, welcome. Before we start about, before we talk about some of the main themes in the book, what do you make of this latest crypto crash? Uh, Is it just another chapter or or might we think of it as a final chapter? Well, you know, I was actually involved in the Bitcoin community from about 2011 or so. So I've spent a long time around the the crypto community. But I've got to say, in recent years, I actually don't pay that much attention to the crashes because they happen all the time. So in some ways, the crashes are kind of old hat now. They routinely and, and, and uh, continue to happen. Um, but in terms of you know what's going on in the crypto world, I mean, you're just seeing huge amounts of speculative capital sloshing around the world, trying to find places to um, trying to get returns. And crypto is one of those places that people try to get returns. And But the nature of many crypto tokens is that they because they have very little grounding in reality often, they are highly subject to both big booms, but also crashes because they're, very, they're largely untethered to anything. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. It's, 
it's a uh, yeah it's it's very very normal and berlin is a big crypto city but um a lot of the people here in berlin are also you know trying to distance themselves from some of the crypto speculation world so there's a kind of a, there's, a, there's a sort of new wave of crypto entrepreneurs who are trying to get away from that old style of crypto as well but, well, yeah. surprise, surprise, Brett. They should be. Yeah, um, I have a big PR Before problem. we get to uh, cloud money, before the, the core argument in cloud money, um, what is your understanding of the core use case, the value of cryptocurrency? I had Ethan Lau on the show, one of crypto's cheerleaders, been on a couple of times. I had him on last month. I said to him, what's the real value? He said, well, there was this... Afghan refugee, this female refugee who lost all her, who got driven out of Afghanistan, you know, classic sub story. I'm, I'm sure it was a, a bad story. Ends up, surprise, surprise, in Berlin without her money, but she did have crypto and she had a remarkable mathematical mind. So she was able to maintain um, the codes for her crypto in her head. And when she got to Berlin, she was able to translate those codes back into cash. Now, that may or may not be true. And of course, it's a heartwarming story, but it's exceptional, particularly because most people can't carry very long codes in their head. Mm-hmm. Is that the best case, use case for crypto? Or is there something that I'm missing that's more mainstream, that has more value for many of the people watching this show? Yeah, sure. I mean, bear in mind this term crypto is slightly problematic because that it refers to a, quite a wide range of different things. I mean, in the early days of Bitcoin, it used to be called, you know, people just refer to Bitcoin as crypto. Now this term is becoming more and more sort of generic and it refers to loads of different things. So, I mean, there are some elements of the crypto world that, that, have, that have use, but bear in mind that the majority of what we're talking about when we talk about crypto is crypto tokens or cryptocurrencies that get traded on speculative markets. Okay, so I take that. So what's the value? Why, why would anyone actually use it? Well, look, I mean, one of the reasons, one of the things you should maybe try and do if you're looking at the history of crypto is to look at the intuitions behind the movements and compare it to what the actual reality is. So a lot of the, the intuitions behind the original Bitcoin, um, a lot of the components that went into making Bitcoin come from the cypherpunk movements of the 1990s who looked forward into the future and said, hey, if we end up in a cashless society, if we end up in a society where all our transactions have to go by the banking sector and um, we're going to have a big surveillance problem. So there's lots of this sort of attempts in the 1990s to think about how to build digital cash. And so Bitcoin kind of comes out of a tradition. But really what Bitcoin is, is a... It's a very crude token implemented on a very sophisticated technological platform. So many of the problems of Bitcoin kind of come down to this, that you have this extremely sophisticated technological layer, but a very, very crude token system on top of that. And as a result, what's really what you really have in the Bitcoin system is essentially um, digital objects that you can trade, which have sort of monetary branding pasted over them. All right. So reality for most people is that Bitcoin is something you buy for money and you resell for money. And you can also use that object for exchange. But in the meantime, it fluctuates massively in its actual speculative price. All right. So whether you think that's useful or not really depends on who you are. So sure, there are some marginal use cases where you, for example, that example you gave me there of the, the refugee. Fine. If you manage to buy one of these objects in a particular country and then you go to another country and you're able to you know, remember how to um, get that object again, a digital object, then it can be useful. 
but you kind of got to put it into, a, into context. Bear in mind, many Bitcoiners claim that the system will replace the US dollar, all right, and uh, which is definitely not going to do, right? but it has the sort of marginal uses on the sort of side of, of the monetary system. Well, you haven't convinced me. I don't think you probably are much of a believer in yourself. Your, your book is more um, ominous about cash and finance. Uh, we had Shoshana Zuboff on the show a couple of years ago. Her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, has been very influential. You mentioned that Bitcoin was founded initially by uh, people who feared surveillance capitalism, who feared being watched. Is that the core argument in your book, uh, Cloud Money, uh, that the war for our wallets on cash, cards and crypto is also a war to watch us? Is that the biggest fear we should uh, concern ourselves about digital money, digital finance? Uh, fintech that uh, it's extending uh, the surveillance of, of everything that, of course, somebody like Mark Zuckerberg has championed and pioneered. Sure. I mean, the surveillance aspect is one part of my book. So, I mean, if, if you want the kind of high level overview of what, of what the book basically is, is arguing, it's saying, if you look at the global capitalist system, we're seeing essentially big tech and big finance trying to fuse together, right? So if you think about 2008, you'd have, you know, companies like Google were still, were still sort of seen as a, these kind of like cuddly corporations. People yeah, kind here of we have view. Google Pay, Apple Pay, uh, Amazon Pay. They're all in the finance business. Yeah, right? exactly. And this is, this, is, this is predictable, right? Because if you think about large tech platforms, they basically cannot operate unless they intersect into large uh, digital finance platforms. All right, they can't do anything unless they are able to do that. So there's a natural synergy between big tech and big finance, but it's taken a while for that relationship to form. And actually, in the early during the financial crisis, there was this whole story that what was happening with financial technology was that it was coming in to sort of um, revolutionize finance and so on. But really, what's been happening is that the normal financial sector is getting automated. So think the fintech industry has basically taken the standard financial industry and just sort of made it more faster and more automated, which then enables it to fuse with big, with big tech. All right. So, and in that process, the cash system, you can actually view the cash system, which is this, you know, offline, non-automated physical form of money that requires you to actually face real people. That system's been being crushed. And we were often told that the reason why it's being crushed is that we all desire it to disappear. But really what's happening in the structure of the global economy is you're seeing this the structural change where these huge powers are fusing and, and there's, there's a lot of top-down pushes against the cash system. And in that context, that's what you've got to see the crypto movements in because the crypto movements imagine themselves as being an alternative to that big tech, big finance, big state vortex, as it were. All right. So that's the self-image of the crypto movements. Is that, is that that's what they're doing? But really what we're often seeing is that they, they themselves are starting to fuse into that same vortex. So I'm actually arguing for the protection of the cash system because I believe that the cash system helps us maintain diversity um, and uh, in the, the monetary system, but also protects privacy and inclusion. Right. And as the, the review of the your book on the FT says, making the case for cash, are you suggesting then that Alex Mashinsky, the CEO of Celsius, a man who rumored to have fled the US, might be another major crypto criminal. He's infamous because he 
marketed the t-shirt, banks are not your friends, which probably most people would agree. Banks have never claimed to be our friends, except some of the more excessive marketing ones. But you're suggesting that none of the digital platforms are our friends. Well, look, I mean, I think I think the, the issue is, is perhaps more complex or contradictory than that. There are, uh, you know, bear in mind in any, any large-scale capitalist system over time, there'll always be one incumbent industry and there'll always be newcomers trying to disrupt that industry and they will always uh, take on a kind of revolutionary rhetoric in the process. So in 2008, that was the fintech industry that took on this whole revolutionary saying, oh, we're revolutionizing finance. But then it turns out that actually basically they're just fusing with standard finance, right? Um, and I think the crypto industry is, is heavily traded on this idea that they are revolutionizing finance and so on. But if you look at many of the crypto platforms, they actually replicate many of the same toxic principles of standard speculative finance. Um, and actually, in the background, many of these platforms still depend on normal financial infrastructures. So, yeah, there's lots of sort of hand waving in the crypto industry about disruption, but often they are fusing. But that said, I mean, I don't want to sort of discount the possibility that there are, I mean, it, the main, if you want to think about what the sort of profound, um, architectural change that the crypto community is trying to make is that the original Bitcoin system was essentially a way for large networks of strangers, people who don't know each other, to coordinate action between themselves and move tokens between themselves without these large central players. All right. So and those some... large central players, of course, above all else, are central banks. Some central banks have embraced crypto most of them now disastrously like in El Salvador. Is there some truth to that? Should we applaud crypto and fintech's challenge to the authority of central banks and central bankers? We've done some shows on the Federal Reserve Board um, suggesting that their policies since 2010 have been pretty disastrous, flooding the market with money, which has benefited the wealthy, but nobody else. So should we should we be open to the idea of challenging the central bank? I'm, as someone who's not particularly financially literate, but is more interested in politics and economics, it always seems to me to be very dangerous, the idea of undermining the central bank, because it opens the door just to simple anarchy. Well, it's also naive. I mean, I think one of the things you that characterizes the crypto movements above all is naivety, and also a slight Mm, should I say like a sort of cynicism in, in, in its use of that? Because I mean, a lot of a lot of crypto uh, platforms use this rhetoric of revolution against the financial sector, and yet depend upon the normal dollar system. All right, they're the main obsession in crypto is trading the tokens for U.S. dollars, buying them with U.S. dollars to resell for U.S. dollars. It's entirely integrated into the U.S. dollar system. All right, so bear in mind, there's lots of this sort of naive rhetoric, but also. You know, the, one of the big critiques made in, you know, in crypto circles is that, you know, they often come from this sort of quite conservative libertarian ideology, which says, oh, you know, you know normal monetary systems are backed by violence. Um, but, you know, the entire global capitalist system is backed by violence. It's got contract law, it's got corporations, it has all these huge systems of nation states, which basically underpin most global markets, right? So it's naive to believe that you're going to somehow overcome um, state power. Which, so a lot of the things that I tend to be more interested in is, you know, how do you gain democratic control of existing monetary systems rather than sort of engaging in these types of fantasies of a state How good budget. a job in your view? Is it any coincidence, for example, that 
two things seems to have been happening on the markets over the last month or two is on the one hand, we have the collapse of crypto. On the other hand, the dollar is increasingly strong. Are this, is this connected? I don't think they're connected, no. I mean, look, the, the problem about, as I mentioned earlier, about, about crypto is, I mean, I used to work in financial markets and in financial markets, there's, there's two types of analysis you can do in any type of investment. You either look at its underlying reality, which is called fundamental trading or fundamental investment. You, you, you actually look at something and say, is this a good prospect for the future? Or else you watch other people and see what they're doing, which is called technical trading. You know, so you watch the actions of others. The problem of many crypto tokens is that there's no way to do fundamental analysis on them. So basically, all you can often do is watch other people. All right. So you have this incredible self-referential sort of stuff going on in crypto where it can vastly, it can swing for almost no reason. Right. So there's a lot of this stuff going on in the crypto world. And it's very hard to correlate it or pinpoint it to particular things happening in the world. Um, according to, the, to a lot of crypto people, the markets should be going up now, right? But they don't, they crash. So, uh, yeah, I would be wary to correlate those two things. Right. We had a, a show a couple of months ago with a Princeton sociologist, Viviana Zeleza, uh, who writes about the social meaning of money. You believe in the idea of cash. What is the argument for using cash you argue in the book that using cash is a political act what do you mean well look i mean as i mentioned the if you zoom out if you if you if you ignore the sort of day-to-day language about you know which you know a lot of the rhetoric about cashless society claims it's a sort of bottom-up process it says you know hey we all we're all the ones who are driving it but really what i'm looking at is analyzing the top-down push against cash from large institutions from banks payments companies big tech and so on um, so actually, if you, if you look at the, the deep politics of it, the cash system stands in the way of big finance and big tech, basically, at, in the current phase of the global economy. So in some ways, the fight to keep hold of cash is a fight for localization, um, almost I'm going to say like the, the sort of human element of economies, right? Because think about what Amazon wants. It wants you to get off the high street. It wants you to get out of shops. It wants you to do everything online. It wants you to do everything via these huge data center, data center structures. All right. And increasingly people are sucked into this kind of disorientating vortex of the digital, but really we're human beings, right? We're physical beings. We operate through communities um, and all this rhetoric about the desirability of, of, of digital is doesn't actually it's largely not in our interest it's in the interest of very large corporations but not in our interest so I, i'm pointing out it's, it's totally fine to support the cash system and it's a very human thing to do and i often use this metaphor of saying right now which is um you know cash is like the public bicycle system of payments right it's a resilient public utility it's inclusive you don't need to be plugged into large institutions to use it it just works doesn't crash and all these and, and it, it maintains localization right it maintains human connection um, and I think it's actually a superior form of money in many situations it's but an interesting argument um, it's been made in lots of other areas as well um, the English journalist I'm sure you know his work Jamie Bartlett um, was on the show recently he has a book out about the missing crypto queen a Bulgarian crypto scam a Bulgarian woman one coin and and he went to africa to look at some of the investors in one coin and he went to some villages and it seems as if the poorest people in africa or some poor people in africa were particularly hard hit by the one coin scam you always heard these arguments you're from south africa originally brett so you've heard these arguments 
that if we could get beyond cash in Africa and India in particular, people would acquire identity and economic power. What, what do you make of those arguments? Some of them, of course, are self-serving, but some of them are made by people who actually believe the idea that the digital revolution in cards and crypto and networked finance would benefit uh, entrepreneurs, for example, in Africa who are excluded from the conventional banking system and who often live outside cities. Is there any truth in that argument? Yeah, sure. But you know, bear in mind, I'm not arguing that you shouldn't have the presence of digital payments. I'm arguing against the end of the cash system, which is slightly different to arguing for the uh, you know, not against purely, you know, refusing to have digital payments. And actually, it's, it's useful thinking about that transport metaphor where I use, I say cash is like the public bicycle system of payments. Now, it's true, if you're stuck in a world where you only have bicycles, hey, it's, it's entirely possible you might desire cars and they might open up new opportunities for you. All right. But that's very, very different to a situation where you shut down bicycle lanes We're in, a, in a, a world dominated by cars. So this, the, what's referred to as a cashless society is not really about the presence of digital. It's about the removal of a non-digital alternative. Right. So I don't for a moment deny that if you're in the global economy and you are a small trader, for example, in let's say Uganda, where I think actually some of the crypto queen stuff was happening, um, that you might find a new digital system useful. Right. Um, and I, I think that's that's one of the, the, the points to make there. But bear in mind, this what's called financial inclusion is often very shallow. If I've come from an international development background. If you're interested in truly doing international development, you do stuff like large-scale infrastructure programs, right? No amount of giving people, say, microcredit is going to help them unless the underlying structure of the economy will allow them to actually make income and get out of debt. So if you just rock up in a place and start forcing digital systems onto people, what will often happen is you'll have indebtedness and things like that emerging. What you, true development involves dealing with the underlying causes of poor income. And in many of the countries in the global South, it's because they're stuck in a very bad position in the global economy. Uh, Brett, we've done a number of shows also on quote-unquote dirty money. It's not necessarily dirty cash, but dirty money, one with the pioneering financial journalist Tom Burgess, Kleptopia, I know, I'm sure you know his work, also recently with Oliver Bullo, has a new book out on... Britain as the butler to the tax dodgers, kleptocrats and criminals of the world. There's obviously no debate that the financial system is increasingly rotten. Could we clean it up with more or less cash? We always think, of course, I just watched a, a movie last night, a, f uh, a crime movie about some criminals demanding uh, banknotes, unnamed or un you know, un, unnumbered banknotes. We always hear that uh, in, or we always see that uh, on, uh, on, on, in movies. Um, does cash benefit the criminal or is it, or, or might it be a, an antidote to the criminality of our dirty money system, particularly the one emanating from Moscow? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing I'll say is that this this line that cash is uniquely suited to facilitating criminality is a big weapon in the marketing arsenal of many digital um, fintech companies and so on. They often spread this idea. 
But it's well known that the normal financial sector, which is the one that underpins the normal digital payments systems, you know, your bank cards, um, that the normal financial sector facilitates huge amounts of offshore tax avoidance for corporations and things like that, right? And also fraud and so on. You know, the FBI has entire teams that focus solely on trying to track bank transfers, all right? Um, and yet the public imagery of criminality is often, you know, the sort of, you know, um, kind of you know, these bags of cash and so on. You know, one of the things about cash is it's slow and it's physical. It's actually quite hard to, you certainly can use it for crime, like any form of money, but it's quite hard to take giant bundles of cash over borders. You actually have to like uh, do various, it, it's, it's a lot of work. Whereas in many of these digital systems, there are ways of doing digital transactions that are far faster and you can do them on a much larger scale. All right, so I think, we're, you know, in the in the last you know few decades, there's been a lot of the scaremongering about cash. Uh, but if you actually had to find yourself in a cashless society, you'd very very quickly discover that massive amounts of cybercrime, fraud, um, new forms of hacking, and so on, and criminal transactions would be rife in that. And especially with the advent of crypto now, which enables that. that uh, well, also- but I mean, so, some of the some of the supporters of crypto would strongly disagree. Like Don Tapscott, an old friend of mine. He believes, and he's been making this argument for several years now, that blockchain can clean everything up because it, and he argued this in his latest book, Supply Chain Revolution, because it creates transparency. You can't hide anything on the blockchain. And in fact, one of the co-inventors of Ethereum, one of the the cryptocurrencies, Gavin Wood, an English tech guy, argued that, and of course, there's some marketing here and some self-interest, is that with crypto... Uh, trust is replaced by truth. Uh, could blockchain be a fix to all this? I mean, if we can see everything, if we can see everybody's financial transaction, then surely we can get rid of corruption too without cash. No, that's total fantasy. That I mean, it's it's. I've I've spent a long time around the, the sort of blockchain scene, and there was always always. Again, as I, as, as I said earlier, any new industry has to constantly come in with this kind of revolutionary rhetoric about why it's good. Um, and actually, in, in, in blockchain circles, you find both these arguments. You find this idea that it'll maintain privacy, but it'll also somehow maintain, um, uh, it'll have this huge transparency element. And it's partially because of the way that the crypto is structured that actually combines those two things together in an interesting way. But a lot of the um, sort of second wave blockchain people would often make this claim and that to solve corruption, you just got to come in with these highly public uh, distributed ledger systems, which is what they build. Um, but it totally ignores the actual human aspect of any system. If you're actually in a corrupt setting, uh, sure, once you put something onto a particular type of blockchain system, you can't remove it. All right. But, you know, who gets to put it on? Um, in what context? You know, if you put fraudulent information on to begin with, you're going to have fraudulent information baked in for the rest of time. So there's a lot of problems to this idea that somehow uh, the crypto architectures are, are, are resistant to any type of fraud. They're totally not resistant to fraud. I mean, actually, many of these crypto architectures nowadays can actually be changed and can actually... Uh, so they don't have the sole immutability that they previously used to claim that they would have. Um, so I think it's a very naive claim. This is not to say that it, you know, you know, it can't be designed. You, but you know, you can uh, designing 
robust systems and anti-corruption involves many things beyond technology. You've got to change political cultures. You've got to uh, improve the underlying economy. There's many things you need to do to remove corruption. You can't just paste the technological solution on top. Well, this is very well said, Brett. The, the subtitle of your book is Cash, Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets. We've talked a lot about cash and crypto. I haven't talked much about cards. Um, did a show last year with a VP at MasterCard, a man called Raja Raja Manar. He talked about something he called the, the fifth paradigm of technology, tech leading us to truth. He has a book, Quantum Marketing, Mastering the New marketing mindset for tomorrow's consumers. I certainly wouldn't buy anything from him. But um, he is also, his day job is as VP at, I think, MasterCard of marketing. I mean, obviously, the big card companies, uh, American Express, Visa, MasterCard, they're not ideal. But if you use these cards right and you don't allow them to charge you interest, they're not a bad compromise, are they, between the risk of crypto and the inconvenience of cash? Well, I would deny that cash is inconvenient for a start, but let's hypothetically- well, it is, Brett. I mean, and, I, and I'm sympathetic to your argument. I mean, nobody wants to carry coins and bits of money in their pocket. And I think one of the consequences of yeah, sure, sure. COVID, okay, well, for better or worse, is we've all got used now not to carry cash around. And, and I think most people actually, even if they take your argument like I do, aren't mourning having to pull out their wallet every time they buy anything. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, so the first thing I'd say about just as a meta point is, you know, I, I often use this metaphor where I say, you know, like you might like the convenience of an elevator to get you up to the top of a skyscraper, but but that doesn't mean you want the emergency stairs removed. All right. So one of the first points is that it's fine to like these digital systems, but you've got to be careful about the undermining of... Okay, well, I'll take the digital. What about cards? What's yeah, well, the those... argument against cards? Well, the cards are the digital system, right? So the, the main thing is that the convenience comes paired with a huge amount of dependence upon corporate power, right? And if you, if you, if you care about that... Why? Then... Sorry? I mean, if I, I, I've got lots of cards and maybe i'm just a schmuck but it doesn't seem to me as if i'm helping i mean obviously it benefits mastercard and visa every time i use it but w what's the downside of that well i mean it's a, the well there's a, a number of downsides so the first to me one, personally i mean I, I get the argument about uh crypto about being watched all the time and and, and them knowing everything i'm doing but cards seem more complicated than that yeah, well, I mean, the first thing is, you know, cashless society is basically a euphemism for a bank dominated society, right? So and the cards are basically that. So you're dependent upon the banking sector so that you might not care about that. But in terms of your actual what that what that brings about is, well, first of all, massive amounts of potential for surveillance also brings out huge amounts of potential for censorship of transactions which if your democratic system holds up, it's that you might not worry about that. But as soon as you've got some kind of democratic deficit in your country, that becomes a potential problem, right? So the ability of, to use monitoring of payments as a way to discipline people and stop them doing certain things. Aren't you um, being a bit of a, uh, aren't you panicking a bit? I mean, are there real examples of this in democratic systems of credit card companies controlling people's behavior? 
Well, we don't live in a cashless society, do we? So we, we, we have protection from that right now. But in the hypothetical scenario that you end up in a cashless society, this becomes a huge vector. For... I think we are increasingly living in a cashless society. It may be interesting in the US, particularly given uh, the post-row environment of the yeah. role of, say, credit card companies when it comes to a, abortion, whether they'll be uh, dragged Absolutely. into this issue but also i mean this cuts across the political spectrum so in the case of you know you've got a conservative supreme court and now suddenly you're uh you're gonna have your payments watched as well i mean that's a problem but it also for example in canada there was uh the canadian trucker protests were broken up through bank account freezes so there's huge amounts of political um possibilities there all right so you know but again you you might not care about that but that is an, actually a social issue that a state has got to deal with and the public's got to deal with um but other other issues i mean there's uh just resilience problems as soon as you become dependent upon these systems you essentially have um you're, you're placing a lot of trust in very large institutions and you know if you speak to say national security officials uh, they are very concerned about cyber attacks, terrorist attacks on payment systems when those, when those systems go down. So if you think about a new era of economic warfare in future, right, when you don't have these cash systems in place, the, the payment system suddenly becomes a massive target for geopolitical actors. Because if you can hit your payment systems, you can really, you know, kneecap an, an economy. So again, this might not manifest in your day-to-day -day environment as you sort of tapping away on your card and so on, but this is what's going to happen. And this is what the, what the future we're moving towards. So you have to proactively be thinking about, okay, so we have this, this, this narrative that, that, that cash is inconvenient, which has partly actually been engineered by the fact that the cash infrastructure has been undermined. Um, but really, it's going to be very, very inconvenient in future when all those problems hit you. And this is, you know, it's a difficult argument to make, but it's an argument to make, you can make about many elements of technology as well. Right, people be watching this and, and, and agreeing in part with you and like me. And so, yeah, he's absolutely right. But at the same time, this is also inconvenient. I'm not going to use cash for anything. What advice would you give people who agree with your argument, but who are not willing to just transfer over to cash entirely. We, we talked about the credit card companies. You've mentioned Apple Pay and Google Pay and Amazon Pay. Um, those companies are very different in their business models. I certainly trust Apple more than, than Google. Uh, and Amazon brings its own host of problems. And then there are companies like PayPal that seem to, and, and Jack Dorsey's Square, that exists somewhere between radical crypto and conventional credit cards. And then there's the Amexes and the Visas of the MasterCards of the world. If you're going to use something along with cash, what would you suggest? What's the, the, the best of the worst, uh, the best given the reality of the situation? Well, I mean, I've got a particular bias. I mean, I don't, I don't really make that much distinction between all those other players there because I'm doing a kind of meta analysis, right? So I'm not, uh, but actually, if I was to say, throw a, throw a sort of curveball out there, I would say actually the most interesting aspect of the crypto world are these stablecoin systems, all right? And Which haven't probably... proved to be very stable, Scott. I mean, they, we were promised they were stable and half of them- Yeah, yeah, biased. sure. Sure. Bear in mind, there's two different types of stablecoin systems. There's ones that are essentially a little bit like PayPal, which are backed, 
by actual US dollars and uh, bank accounts. And then there are those, what they call algorithmic stable coins, which are, have these sort of elaborate mechanisms of trading in order to try and mimic a dollar. Now those, the ones that crashed are those, that latter category, which aren't actually backed by anything, but are involve these sort of complex arbitrage mechanisms. I wouldn't trust those systems at all. But in terms of actual, if, you think, if you're interested in what actually most replicates cash in a digital form, it is the stablecoin systems, those, the former type that I mentioned. Um, because they are digital, you can move them around very fast and so on, and yet they maintain a degree of anonymity. And perhaps the most interesting uh, thing about crypto systems is this concept of a digital bearer instrument. So cash is a bearer instrument. If you hold it, you control it. Whereas your card systems and those digital, the normal digital systems are dependent upon an institution. Right? So you have to ask PayPal and ask the banks to do stuff for you. Whereas the, the crypto systems, the stablecoin systems often have a hybrid model where you have to ask a network of um, validators to do something for you, but you're the only one who can initiate it. So there's an interesting model there in terms of creating these sort of hybrid forms of digital cash. Um, and I actually think that is potentially quite interesting in future and we could, could be quite disruptive. In your book, um, Cloud Money, as I said, you argue in favor of cash. You just described it as the bicycle of finance. Um, that was an interesting book, came out few years ago called The Revenge of Analog, Real Things and Why They Matter by David, the Canadian journalist David Sachs. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Seems as if you're making a revenge of analog argument in yep. the financial space. Um, and certainly there is a revenge of analog in the world today. Say vinyl records have taken off massively. But it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that what we're seeing with the revenge of analog is that the wealthy have embraced vinyl and other forms of analog because they have the choice and most people especially those unfortunate uh ugandan villagers who were ripped off by one coin they no longer have that choice to what extent do you think for better or worse and i'm not saying you want this but as as we become more nostalgic for cash for its physicality for its perhaps romantic connotations that it will become something that only the wealthy can use and afford. It's rather like privacy as well in the 21st century. I, I don't think that's going to happen at all, actually. So the first point I make is that we live under an ideology, so a general belief system, that more speed, scale, complexity is always better. All right, And that's because that's how you grow economic systems. And so you think about sort of how corporate capitalism, this is the sort of standard ideology. And, and as part of that, that comes with the digital rhetoric. Digital, everything is always better. and We will always be moving towards that. I think in future, that narrative will be turned on its head, especially in the world of climate change, where there's increasingly natural disasters and forms of resource scarcity. I think it's going to be a big return of the analog, and it's not going to be something which is seen as only for the wealthy. I mean, right now, fine, that's the case. But uh, in the case of cash, actually, it's, its greatest use is among the poorest of society. It's definitely right now not I mean, huge numbers of people in the world use cash, right? Um, and actually often prefer cash. It's just that their voices don't get heard because they're not part of the innovation elite who gets to define the narrative. Um, so I think there's going to be a big comeback. And even to this day, I mean, the Federal Reserve records huge increases in cash demand when there's a hurricane approaching. I mean, people, it's a superior form of money in many situations, um, precisely because it's offline. And I think people understand that. But it does go against what the corporate sector wants, right? 
groups like Amazon, et cetera, don't want the cash system. It slows everything down. It jams automation. So the question is, it's, it's not actually in the interest of society to have that fully digital um, space, but that's what the ideology is. And I actually question whether we'll ever get to that fully digital society at all. Well, that's great stuff. It's a really important and interesting argument made by Brett Scott in his new book, Cloud Money, Cash, Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets. Congratulations, Scott. The book's just out. I think it's essential reading for all of us because we all have to use either cash, cards, or crypto to make our payments. So congratulations on the book and on the Thank argument. Uh, what else are you reading, uh, Scott, these days? I hope you're you're buying your books. I'm not sure what you're using. I hope you're buying cash. I'm sure you go into bookstores. You're not the kind of guy to buy from Amazon, right? I, I do. I do love books. I don't think you yeah. can use Amazon in Germany, can you? Yeah, I mean, you can. You, you can use Amazon yeah. in Germany, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you ride. I hope you ride your bicycle to your local bookstore <laughs> in Berlin and then pay cash for physical books. I'm sure you do. I always, I always try my best. Um, so, what but, books are you reading recently, in addition to your? So, book? Um, I, I've recently been reading uh, Stephanie Kelton's "The Deficit Myth," which I think is. Oh yeah, I had her on the show. Is that stuff for real, or is it just more garbage? No, that's a great book. That's that's. I, I love I love what she's doing there. Because I mean, I'm always around. I, I do a lot of stuff around monetary systems, and it's it's amazing the misinformation you hear from very high end policy people. They have the they have the story about money completely the other way around, right? And so Stephanie's Stephanie's book, The Deficit Myth, is a great myth buster, just bulldozing through a lot of that sort of um, public finance narrative. So I, I definitely recommend that. I've also actually been rereading Kate Rayworth's uh, Donut Economics, yeah. which, is, which is a really, I think is a really solid, great book for anybody who's interested in a more holistic take on, on economics and, and how... Yeah, we had her husband, Roman Krasnarich, on, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. who wrote a book about ancestors. Kate Rayworth is a hard person to get, but at some point I will get her because I yeah, think yeah, she's the good. Donut Economics book, especially in, in terms of the environment and the future of capitalism is essential. Yeah, and the last one I'd say is that I'm just starting to read is uh, Sarah Jaffe's "Work Won't Love You Back." Yeah, she's she's going into looking at um, the, all the narratives we have about loving your work and and how that. Operates. Yeah, Sarah was on the show too, Brett. So okay, well, <laughs> everyone's been on the show, but congratulations on your new book. You're on the show now. You're a keen on alumni. Congratulations. Well, we'd love Thank to have you. you back. It's an important subject, and you make your case in an extremely coherent and forceful way. So congratulations on that. Congratulations Thanks on the so book. Thanks so much, Andrew. Great to chat.